All right, today we'll be reading from Psalm 23, 1 through 6. You're using the Bibles in the pew. It's on page 506. Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. This is the word of the Lord. Well, I said it at the 9, I'll say it at the 11. You probably didn't expect to see me up here today, did you? But that's what you got. No, I'm just kidding. I'm really excited, though, to uh, be giving another message. The 9 a.m. was, I think it was really interesting just to, this is my first time doing a two-sermon, doing the same sermon twice. So anyway, you're in for a treat. So, um, but I just want to say welcome. I'm Pastor Alex. I'm the executive pastor here at Westside. And if you're watching online, welcome as well. Um, we're Starting a little mini-series is what we called it, uh, Psalms of Summer. And so um, if you're like me, I, I, you know, I'm just kind of, I'm ready to go sometimes. I'm like, I'll wake up at 7 a.m. with shoes on, ready to go, right? So what I want to do is when we do this next two weeks, this week and next week, we're going to talk about a specific psalm, Psalm 23. But I want to give us, just as we start, some handles on this thing. That way we know what we're going to do and the goal. <clears throat> so the goal of the Psalms of Summer series is pretty straightforward. It's pretty also profound. We want to we leave this series to understand that the Psalms are the tool for the language of our prayers. I don't know if you know anything about the book of Psalms, but I'm about to give you a whole bunch of info about the Psalms. But one thing that I think is quite hilarious when it comes to the Psalms, and I say hilarious because they're filled with emotion. If you've read any sort of psalm in your life, whether it be good or bad, the psalms do not shy away from the human emotion. There's good, there's bad, and there's a little in between. There's even royal psalms for those being in power. But I thought to myself, what would really illustrate why God would give us the book of psalms? Have you ever wondered why we have a book in our Bible called Psalms? It's just, what does it even mean, right? There's 150 of them. Didn't David write them all? We're going to learn about that today. But I thought, what story would better illustrate the Psalms and the human emotion? You ready for it? I've got a three-year-old. And what I personally love doing, besides getting my wife iced coffees, fellas, do, you, you know, do that. <laughs> but I love getting my son a strawberry-sprinkled donut. Absolutely love it. Now, there's the other side of it. If they're out at Dunkin' Donuts, then I just do like either chocolate-sprinkled. But the point is, my son loves strawberry-sprinkled donuts. And what I've noticed with, with this is he'll only eat the top portion of the donut. He doesn't eat the whole donut, right? My kid doesn't like bread. I don't know. He'll eat chicken nuggets all day long, but won't eat the bottom half of a donut. And what happens when the donut top is gone, he loses his mind. <laughs> so what he'll do is, just to give you an understanding of what three-year-olds do, because I was told after the first service, like, he's just doing what a three-year-old does. And I'm like, I am terrified of four. But three years old, he is completely filled with emotion when all of the strawberry sprinkles are gone. He will throw the donut, throw it into the floor so the dog will try to get it. And if you understand that fight of a kid and a dog, I have a beagle as well. So, like, it's just chaotic. It's like what was good turns into absolute 
chaos. And so I thought to myself, how, you know, the Psalms, that, there's an interesting thing when you read the Psalms of like, they're, they're getting words out of us. It's like my son in a temper tantrum. He can't find words to describe how upset he is that he has no more strawberry sprinkled donut. And I think that's important when we look at the word of the book of Psalms is because they, use, they teach us how to use our words. It's like looking at a kid, right? He points, he gets mad. My son grunts a lot, right? It's like, okay, calm down. Use your words. And the Psalms, I feel like, for God's children, are them using, learning to use their words. And so here's what I want to do is give you some just quick understandings of what the book of Psalms is. It's one of those books that you'll study for your entire life, okay? You don't just do a sermon series on Psalms and got it figured out, especially a two-week series, okay? But I want to do this. I want to give you the purpose and shape of the Psalms. I think those two things, the purpose and the shape of the Psalms, are really important for us as we study Psalms 23 today. So the Psalms have been this. They have been designed to be the prayer book of God's people as they wait for the Messiah. So they're pointing to a future king. So the the, the book of Psalms is a prayer book of God's people. You can see history of Israel throughout the pages. You can see God's triumph and the low points all in this one book. Many people, I know I was a teenager, I was like, well, David wrote all the Psalms, man. Like, yeah, good for David. Well, guess what? He didn't write all of the Psalms. So this being said, the Psalms are written by a collection of authors. Check this out. The Psalms are 150 Hebrew poems. 73 are written by David. 12, the sons of Asaph, 11, the sons of Korah, one tributed to Moses. Scholars debate if Moses wrote two of them. That leaves the rest of the 51 Psalms. We got no idea. And that's in your Bible. If you look at the top of your Psalms, you'll see some Psalms, a Psalm of David, a Psalm of Asaph, sons of Korah. But then there's 51 that we simply don't know. What's also interesting about the book of Psalms is it's the largest collection of of poetry in the Bible. If you didn't know this about your Bible, it's really quite, inter- quite exciting when you realize the Bible is kind of like a library. If you ever went into a library, there's different sections. They split it up not only in chronological order, but there's separate sections. There's biographies, there's stories, there's magazines. And the Bible is very similar to that when it comes to poetry. So there's certain books in the Bible that are strictly poetry. And that's what we have with the book of Psalms. And you might be like me and go, Alex, I like definitions. What's the Psalms mean? Well, psalms means praises. So when you hear the word book of psalms, it's the book of praises. It's God's people giving God praise. And I love this too because you might hear some people call it the psalter, which just means the collection of songs. Let's just have fun together. Let's say it together. Psalter. If you want to know, you know, there's all these fancy scholarly terms that you can, can learn, but the psalter is just fun to say, right? You're like, hey, there's salt. I get it, right? But the Psalms themselves tell us a story, and I think it's interesting when we look at human emotion, the Psalms are not afraid to confront the human emotion. See, when we come into a place like this, we think all happy emotion most of the time. But the reality is, as I've talked to many of you, we all are going through something. Maybe you're in a good season, maybe you're in a trying season, or what one friend of mine used to say is, you just got out of a season, and now you're so you know, warped by the past, the past one, you're thinking there's another one coming. Whatever season of life you're in, you kind of just, what is this place supposed to, to make me feel? And I think the Psalms, many people say the Bible doesn't care about feelings and all of that. I'm like, 
Have you read the book of Psalms? And have you read David's Psalms? Because he's a little, you know, emotional, if you will. And so I think as we read the Psalm 23 today, it's going to go through a lot of emotion. But I love what Athanasius says this. He's an old church father in 300 AD. He says this, Most scriptures speak to us while the Psalms speak for us. In the Psalms, we enter into the experience of the psalmist as he pours out his heart to God or allows his heart to be filled with a fresh word from God. And listen to what he says. There is no human thought or emotion unexpressed in the Psalms. And there is no need we face today that is untouched by the prayers of the psalmist and the answers he receives from the Lord. Now, we live in a world where you take your emotions elsewhere, right? You only come in with the good stuff. The Psalms would say just the opposite. To come before him and lay it all down. And there's interesting things about the Psalms. There's two things that I think quite are crazy. When you look at the Psalms, there's two different types that really stand out. The first one's lament. The laments, this, this coming to God moment, asking him to do something. So for a definition of laments, if you're like me, what's that word even mean? Laments are prayers of pain, confusion, and anger. And check this out. Laments draws, draw attention to what's wrong in the world. You ever gone to a funeral? And you're like, this doesn't feel like human experience. This something, that grieving moment. Lord, do something. That's a lament. Then you have praises. Praises then are prayers of joy and celebration. They draw attention to what's good in the world. They also retell the story of God. When we praise God, you're telling a story. Because guess what? Your neighbor might next to you say, I know that you went through a lot, but you're praising God today. That's, that's a good sign that God can do it for me. Praises tell a story. And I thought to myself, what, what in my life has been the most trying season of laments and praises? And some of you know this story, but it's when our son was born. And he was born at six months, and it was a whole big thing. But I want you to know that at one time we thought it was the lament, God, do something. God, do something. And, and, and just to be honest with you, throughout those 116 days, it was not all perfect. Quite, quite honestly, it was the exact opposite. I feel like there was more bad than good. We had more laments of prayer of Lord, heal, than Lord, praise. But what's interesting is when that whole season was happening in our lives, it transitioned in. We prayed for him every night in his incubator. And sure enough, little by little, our, pray, our laments turned into praise. Now, I don't say that to say, look at me. I, show it, I tell you that story to show that God can do a thing with the story of laments and prayers. And there's nothing that God's not willing to address in your life. God is not just wanting the best of you. Hear this. He wants all of you. All of your doubts and worries and pains, that's our God. So as we look at laments and prayers, I think it's important for us to understand the book of Psalms is not afraid of the human emotion. I love what Dietrich Bonhoeffer says this. He says, if you want to read and, pr and to pray the Psalms, to pray the, well, let me start over. If we want to read and to pray the prayers of the Bible, especially the Psalms, we must not first ask what they have to do with us, but what they have to do with Jesus Christ. It does not depend, therefore, on whether the Psalms adequately ex express that which we feel at a given moment in our heart. If we are to pray aright, perhaps it is quite necessary that we pray contrary to our own heart. Not what we want to pray is important, but what God wants us to pray. 
think it's interesting when you slow down and you realize when Jesus is talking to his disciples and he is telling them, I'm going to go away. My helper will come. The Holy Spirit will come and give you comfort and be your advocate. But he tells them this about his entire life. Luke 24, verse 44, he says this. It's quite profound for Jesus and his hearers at the moment. This would be Jews hearing this. They grew up with the Ketuvim. They grew up with the Septuagint, the Hebrew Bible. They knew their Bible. They were a, a book people is what some scholars call them. They were a book people. And so Luke 24, 44 says this about what Jesus says. Then he, Jesus, said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything was written, everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets, so they're your first five books, your Bible, your prophets, and the Psalms must be fulfilled. So in Jesus, he's saying that the Old Testament scriptures, quite literally, in him, Psalms included, pointing to the future king, have been fulfilled in Jesus. You can imagine for thousands of years they were hoping for a Messiah. How would he come? What would he do? Would he flip the tables? What, what would he do, right? And for Jesus, he's telling them that the Psalms have even been fulfilled themselves. And I started asking myself, what, what story could adequately share what God is doing in the Psalms, especially in Psalm 23? What's he, what's he doing? Okay. Well, here's an interesting story. If you don't know this story, it's quite crazy. Anybody love space in here? Where are my space people at? So I had three in this ser- the first service, and I had like four in here. Okay, great. So if you don't get blown away by seeing the cosmos in a picture, I'm just saying, like, that's our God's masterpiece, okay? So that being said, me and my wife, we absolutely love looking at space. It's not saying nothing about oceans, but there's something about space when you just realize the gravity of it, no pun intended, but all of the, the, the vast ideas of space, it's just so unknown. It's so crazy. So I thought of a story uh, in 1977, It was actually August 20th of 1977 and September 5th of 1977. Voyagers 2 and 1 were unmanned spacecraft shot up into our atmosphere. They shot up uh, Voyager 2 and then Voyager 1. Seems to be Voyager 1 had a little bit more power in it is what what the, the deal was. But one was sent into space to study Saturn. The other one was sent in to go to the outer rings of Jupiter. It was this crazy thing. And this was a moment in humanity's time where they sent two unmanned aircrafts up into our atmosphere. What's crazy about this story is when they were deciding, of course, all the equipment that goes on it and everything, what's interesting is they said, hey, it's 1977, right? I think some of us are, of course, not that old, but 1977, Beatles, you name it, right? So this, in this time, they were thinking, okay, we have two spacecrafts going up into outer space. How about this? What if we made some golden records, they called them, and put them on the aircrafts? That way, if another intelligent life finds them, they can play them. This is a true story. You might think I'm making all this up. Nope, got some pictures to prove it. So let me give you an idea here of what I'm trying to say. There's three people in this photograph you're going to see. Carl Sagan, uh, Linda Salzman, and Frank Drake. And Carl's actually holding his son, Nick. And so this is the three that were put in charge, not of making the aircrafts, but of making, well, Carl Sagan was actually a huge point in in NASA's, you know, background. But these three were given the task. And here's what the task they were given. 
They knew this thing was going to go to space. They knew they were going to try to figure it out. And here's the task, to tell the story of humanity on some disks. Kind of interesting we think about God's word being in one bound book of the story of humanity. But, but this, they, they were tasked with telling the story of humanity. They used phonographic messages, which I know some of us have no idea what that is, and that's okay. But this was before CDs were a thing to our common knowledge. They don't even put CD players in cars anymore, right? But these CDs, them, these discs themselves, were 12-inch gold-plated copper discs containing sounds and images selected to portray the diversity of life and culture on earth. And so these discs themselves have 115 images put into them. And they're put in there by a phone. This is, you got to think like floppy disks. And some of you don't even know what that is. And that's okay too. But this was a lot of data that they were trying to put on just what at the time was the limits of storage on a single disk. And so they used phonographic, like it was crazy how they make an image off of phonograph messages. Look it up when you get home. It sounds like a bunch of static to me, but it translates into an image and you can put it on black and white and it'll show up. And the idea was they put these images on the disks. That way if they're found, they can play them. Here's what's crazy. They made two disks. This one on the far right says the sounds of earth. And they'll put different greetings on them. 55 different languages and different languages, Coptic, you name it, coarse English. But they have sounds on them. They have sounds of whales. They've got sounds of a heartbeat. They've got sounds of all sorts of things that they put on this. They have Bach and Beethoven on there to show the complexities of music and mathematical equations and stuff like that. But not only that, what I thought was hilarious about the discs was, because, I, I mean, guys don't read instruction manuals, right? So the fact that we would do this is quite funny. This is instructions on the disc. You've got to think, if they're f not from Earth, they're going to need to know, like, hey, how do you play this thing? So it's quite comical when you think about how is this all thought out. There's a record player. This is where we're located in the atmosphere of the Earth. This is, like, how you're supposed to see the images of the phonographs. It's crazy to see that they put it right on the actual front face of the disc. Now, I share this story because the images and stuff like that are on it are quite incredible. But they put in different greetings. And so what I want to do, just for the sake of illustration, I want to play you just a very short clip. The, the 9, 9 a.m. service looked at me like I was crazy. But play this clip really quick for them. And this was one of Nick Sagan. This was one of the things that's put on that record floating through interstellar space at this time. Hello from the children of planet Earth. So that's playing, well, I mean, you have to translate it, but that is on a record in interstellar space. And I'm not good with numbers like that. This thing is billions and billions of light years. Like, it's, it's not just like up there hanging out with the moon. This, these two, Voyager 1 and Voyager 2, are floating through interstellar space at this time. Soon, we won't even be able to communicate with them. But it's crazy to think we can still communicate with these spacecrafts. Now, why do I say all of this? Why do I play the clip? One, because it's interesting they were tasked with a story that quite, if you think about it, how hard would that be to tell the story of humanity? Like, what pictures would you use, right? You'd be like, I'm putting my like, profile picture on it at least, right? <laughs> but, but, like, what music would you put on it, right? Like, you'd be like, I want more jazz than hip-hop, or I want R&B, or whatever, right? Throw some James Taylor on there, I don't know. But the idea was they were tasked with such an incredible thing, and they only had, like, six months to do it as well. But what I thought was crazy when I was reading through the story was there was a line that really kind of blew me away. 
With NASA being able to approve all the images and all the sounds, and they tried to get some Beatles stuff on there, and the Beatles didn't approve of the record label and all this other stuff. So John Lennon himself was like, hey, I can't be there and be a part of it. But John Lennon said, why don't you use my sound engineer to make the record, the sound record? Maybe you know who John Lennon's sound engineer was, but I thought this was quite crazy. It's Jimmy Iovine. And you're like, who the heck is that guy, right? Well, Jimmy Iovine later goes, obviously he worked with Bruce Springsteen, the Beatles, but then for my, my you know, modern folk, he signed Dr. Dre, Interscope Records, 50 Cent, Eminem, and ladies, Lady Gaga, okay? So this guy is just an interesting story of like, whoa, the guy that's like modern music, now he's like co-owner of the Beats headphones and blah, blah, blah. But I just thought it was crazy that modern people, you know, the Beatles sound engineer helped design these discs floating through space. And why I think it's crazy to think of why this task was so large was because NASA told them, don't put any images or sounds on the discs that make Earth appeal hostile and not livable. So in other words, no explosions, no poverty, nobody hurting. We want to come off like we've got it all together here on Earth. That way, if anybody finds those discs, we're now the destination of where they want to go. I thought it was interesting that they thought they could hide the true story of humanity by just keeping some images off of the disc. I thought to myself, how, how interesting is that to the Psalms, that the Psalms are not willing, or excuse me, the Psalms are willing to address all the emotions, the hostile nations and the peaceful ones. The pain and the suffering, the Psalms are there. They're in the Psalms. And I, I just that story to me is you can't hide the human emotion. You just can't. And I thought it was interesting that NASA said they wanted to put them on there. And NASA said, nope, not going to happen. I think it's just a story that goes to show you that when it comes to our emotions, we want to run from them. And the Psalms will do just the opposite. The Psalms will address the emotions. And so here's what I want to say. The Psalms address and confront the entirety of human emotion. The Psalms confront the entirety of human emotion. There's not a, uh, an emotion in the Psalms that's not touched on. I think of Psalm 73. Recently I did a funeral for a woman that was under me for a while at, when I was a pastor in Bolivar. She was 86 when she passed. And we were at her graveside, and I read Psalm 23, and I read it at the graveside. But at the actual service... I read Psalm 73, and Psalm 73, verse 5 says that you guide me with your counsel, and afterwards receive me to glory. Whom on heaven do I have but you? There's nothing on earth that I desire more. Though my heart and my flesh may fail, my God is my strength and my portion forever. And I didn't share this at the 9, but I'll share it at the 11. I got to see her Bible after she passed, I asked the family to bring the Bible to our meeting, and I pulled it up to Psalm 73, verse 5 and 6, and would you believe what uh, verses she had highlighted? Not the whole chapter, just the verses I just read to you, and I said, I've got to read that at her service. Because the emotions, at one point in time, she had lost her vision, she had, slow, she had quickly gone downhill, but the idea was at one point in time, that was her hope, and then to, as we laid her to rest, I read it in hope, for the family. The first four, two rows, three rows were full of family. If you need any dose of reality, go to a funeral. They're clinging to some sort of hope. 
They're clinging to God's word. And so I thought to myself that the Psalms confront the entirety of human emotion. There's nothing the Psalms aren't willing to say. So Psalm 23, I think it's by far said this the best way. Psalms 23 is the most quoted poem ever. Not just in the Bible. I would say Psalm 23, even your unbelieving friends would know that one. Oh yeah, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He leaves me. Right? They've heard it. They can almost say it off, but they don't even know where it comes from. And you're like, that's Psalms 23. So Psalms 23 is by far the most quoted poem, I would say, ever. Some scholars would say ever. So what Psalm 23 is written by is King David. And, and again, some people debate, and is, it, is it when David was in the field with the sheep that he wrote this sort of psalm, or was it later in his life when he's playing for King Saul? What exactly is the timeline of this psalm? And so David himself is actually a shepherd in the past and king in the future. And David is looking back now on what he knows is, is familiar. He's looking at shepherd imagery, the sheep themselves. So David's going to be our prayer coach for the next two weeks. I think he's rightfully credited in that sense. I think anybody that's in kingship and also willing to be with the sheep, that's my kind of person. So David's our prayer coach. I love what Dallas Willard says about Psalm 23. He says, Psalms 23 covers the whole of the spiritual life in God's kingdom. When you pray Psalm 23, you find that someone is there waiting for you to greet you and guide you. And I don't know about you, but that's good news to someone in here today. That you're tired of running and you're tired of trying to run from the emotion that God has given you. And today you're confronted with the idea that there is someone there willing to guide you and to meet you. Not just when you're happy, but also when you are hurting. So here's what I want to do. I want to open up my big idea. The big idea for today is this. The shepherd will give you what you need for right now. The shepherd will give you what you need for right now. We read verse 1, The Lord is my shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. Not a shepherd, not the shepherd, not your shepherd. David says he is my shepherd. There's some points I want to pull out of this that I think many of us in the Christian world, we look past so fast. We say, yeah, yeah, get to the point where he talks about even though I walk through the valley of shadow of death, and blah, blah, blah. Let me slow down. I think the Psalms cause some of us, it's a selah in the Psalms. They don't even know what it means. So that's why in your English Bibles, they just left it there. Because they're like, well, instead of trying to mistranslate it, let's just leave it in there untranslated. But the Psalms cause us to slow down. And so I want to slow down today. We're only going to cover the first three verses. Okay, we're only going to cover the first three. Next week will be verses four through six. But what I want to do is I want to open up the idea to you that the shepherd is personal. The shepherd is personal. Look at the wording. He says, the Lord. If you're looking at your Bibles, it's all capitalized. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. Why is the Lord capitalized? Maybe you know this. Maybe you don't. There's different lords in your Bible, some with capital L, some with lowercase l, and there's also all capitalized. And so the word Lord itself there, when we look at our English Bibles, look at your first few pages of your actual index in your Bibles. It'll explain this more. The Lord is Israel's personal name of their God. Think back to Exodus 3. Moses is at the burning bush talking to God. And God tells Moses, hey, you're going to go to Egypt. You're going to tell Pharaoh to free his people, God's people. And Moses is like, that sounds like a great plan, 
But like in school, we learned you got to cite that source. So I'm going to need to know your name. And what God tells Moses is Ehia, which I know you're like, what the heck did he just say? It means I will be. We translate it later into Yahweh. They wouldn't even say this name. Throughout centuries, they would not even dare to whisper the name of God for, in fear of saying it wrong. The Lord is my shepherd. So when you see in your Bible where the Lord is all capitalized and sometimes it's not, that's because it's trying to indicate to you in your brain that's not just the Lord. That's God's personal God, Yahweh. Maybe you don't care. Maybe you think about it this way. If I were to start calling my wife, wife. Hey, wife. So impersonal, right? So impersonal. Hey, wife. Phone's for you. Hey, wife. What are we having for dinner? It's, it almost sounds offensive in our, in our language, right? See, when we look at God, even the word God itself, G-O-D, is just a title. It's not his name. So when we look at the Lord in Scripture, I want you to know that is so signifying of the relationship that David is claiming that he has with Yahweh. He's God's, or excuse me, David is saying he is my Yahweh. He is Yahweh. He is personally connected with the God that wants to be known. Think about that. The God we worship wants to be known. You don't have to go find him, search for him. He's not under a rug. He's not, no, he's right here. And we believe he's in this place. He's personal. The shepherd is personal. Not only is David claiming that Yahweh is his personal God, but also he's being open to the idea that David is fully known by God. Look what he says, I shall not want. That's a bold statement. I shall not want. I love what uh, one little girl was trying to learn for her Sunday school class, this verse. And she said, the Lord is my shepherd. I have all that I need. And the teacher was like, huh? you kind of got it. Indicating that she fully understood what David was trying to say. I love what A.W. Tozer says about Psalm 23. He says, an infinite God can give all of himself to each of his children. He does not distribute himself that each may only have a part. I love this. But to each one, he gives all of himself as fully as if there were none others. There's a lot of us in here today. And guess what? God has enough for all of us. Grace, mercy, hope. He's got it all. He's got enough. That's, that's, that's the confession today. See, when, when Jesus gets personal, anytime Jesus gets personal, especially in Scripture, what happens? We're called to get personal. Well, wait a minute. Jesus, how many husbands, how, many, how do you know how many husbands I have? And, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. I just wanted to meet Jesus, and now you're like getting into my personal business. So when, when, we, when Jesus gets personal, we are called to get personal. Look what he says about the second part. I shall not want. In your bullets, and I have it this way. It's the fear of want. We fear that we'll never get what we want. We don't live in a, 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 a we don't live in a fear of loss anymore. What instead, we have things like Amazon Prime Day, where on average we spend $12 billion in two days. Just to think of the amount of consumption that we have as God's people. And none of us are excluded in here, by the way. But the fear of want, we want, we'll never be satisfied. It's a Gatorade, it satisfies for a moment. And you're like, I'm getting parched again. I need more. 
That I think the psalmist is trying to remind us of when David's in the field with his sheep, they would, they would thirst for streams of water. They would strive to have fulfilled and filled tummies, if you will. David's reminding us, do you fear that you lack something that God hasn't given you? Is it a better walk with him? Is it maybe more money in your bank account? Or maybe it's a better marriage? Maybe if your kids would act better? Maybe you've been praying for a long season and God doesn't see, you don't feel like God's listening. The fear of want is very real for God's people. How about this? Do we care more about what God hasn't given us than caring for what God has given us? You know, it's interesting, the staff and us were talking this week, and we kind of had a, you know, kind of just a come to, they call them come to Jesus moments, if you will. But it was said this way, that, you know, it's interesting, the things that we prayed about, once God answers them, how quickly in our sinfulness do they turn into the things we complain about? You wanted that promotion, now you don't want to go to work. You wanted that marriage, and you're like, that's a lot of work. You wanted those kids, also a lot of work. These are, these are things that, that we, we, are we ever going to be satisfied in what we are looking for? I think there's a thirst that we long for, and it's only found with the shepherd. I love what John Piper says. He's a pastor, and he's kind of a wide-known pastor at this point. He says this, God is most glorified, which that should get our attention, right? Like, how do we glorify God? God is most glorified when we are most satisfied in him. Are we satisfied in who God is? Are we satisfied even with his word? I think about all of the books that, you know, both of your pastors here at Westside, we love books. Go into both of our offices. We love books. There's nothing better than these 66 books right here. And how often is it like, well, I just need to go read a book about prayer. No, it's right here. The consumption, even pastors are not excluded from such a thing. You know, I thought to myself this in your bulletin, it's worded this way. Do you care more about consuming than being content? Do you care more about consuming than being content? You know, there's a, I'm going to call some of us out and I hope that's okay. Do you know the average person that's like 20 years and up is on their phone about six hours a day? Six, and I know many of us, and I'm just going to be honest with you, I think I'm above that number sometimes because your phone will tell you sometimes how much you were on your phone this week. It's very condemning if you are an Apple user. But six hours it takes every day that we take out of our, our 24 hours and we look at a screen. And I thought to myself, because I'm a numbers person in some regards, I like to think about how does this practically work? How long does it take to read the Bible from Genesis to Revelation? Anybody have an idea? Genesis to Revelation, Old Testament, New Testament. If you were to sit down and just start reading at an average reader's pace, how long would it take you? 75 hours. Now, let's break this down because you're like, where are you going with this? In the year, you have six hours a day that you're doing to screen time. Let's just say you did six hours. Let's just say you translated that into reading scripture. I'm not saying you have to go read for six hours like a monk or anything like that. I'm just saying you would, at the end of the year, Read your Bible more than 29 times. Think about the words consuming. We consume. We love it, man. I mean, we love, and I'm just saying, I'm from the generation where it's like you post the highlights, and you're like, 
man, no one liked it yet. Can I like my own post? Like, how do I get traction in this algorithm? And then, oh, you get some likes. And it's the consuming, I just want more. I want to feel loved. I want to feel liked. I want to hear a good comment, bad comments, I'm deleting, right? Like, we want this idea of consuming, and we do it through all avenues. I mean, how often are we never satisfied? Even with God's word, what really got me this week was I was thinking in the old Latin term, sola scriptura, which is scripture alone is sufficient. Throughout centuries of church history, the scriptures have gone forth and been the authority in the church. Do pastors have messages? Yes. Do deacons, do elders have purpose? Yes. But you know who has the most authority in this church? Right here. And yet, how often are we like, I mean, that sounds good. I just don't believe it. I, 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 I kind of, you know, I find my own translation and I, I kind of get like, like scripture of the day. You know, they used to have these calendars that you could take one scripture a day and like rip it off and go about your day. I just think that so many times we are faced with the reality and we just overlook it. That we are never content. So listen to what it's saying. The, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not Want. I shall not want. I thought of a, a, a quote this week that I think would help us. Here it is. If you were to ask this question, it would say, God, if you do blank, then I'll trust you. God, if you do that, if you heal me, if you save me, then I'll trust you. If you give me that new car, if you fix my marriage, then I'll trust you. If you fix... And it's always this transaction with God. Yet completely overlooking the transaction of the cross. This just reveals our sinfulness when you think about whatever you put in that blank. That's your God. That's your God. The second thing I want to point out in this scripture is in verse 2. And it's the shepherd's promise. Verse 2, he says, he makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. The shepherd's promise is so profound in this because he gives you two illustrations. One is lying down. What does that mean? Only a sheep that has been fed will lie down. I didn't share this in the first service, but I'm going to share it now. I did homework this week and went to Mauser Farms, if you know what that is. Some of you do. And I fed some sheep. And uh, it was, you know, it was an experience because, you know, oftentimes, you know, I do my homework here, right? But oftentimes I was like, all right, well, people call sheep dumb. And so I asked, uh, I asked Jolie, I said, you know, would you say sheep are dumb? And she said, you know they'll unplug that, that, that electrical cable right next to the fence, right? They'll, they're not that dumb, right? And I thought to myself, well, that's interesting because most people would say they're dumb, but then the Lord calls us his shepherd and we're his sheep and he's the pastor and you're like but I thought it was interesting but just so you know I do my homework I went and played with some sheep and uh, got some you know whatever on my shoe but it was good <laughs> but I got to be a part of it it was great I was like what's, what's this whole sheep life like and I got a little taste of it but the lying down implies that they've been fed so I fed some sheep are we satisfied with our shepherd that's, that's, a, that's, that's as simple as I can make it the second one was stilled waters. He leads me beside still waters. He calms the anxiousness of the sheep to drink. One thing I noticed was they are super skittish, dude. If you, say, if you like, they'll, and they'll both do it to each other. They've got two that we were like watching and, 
Anyway, one would run to the corner and the other would almost look like a football player charging after it. But they're anxious. They seem like anxious animals. And I thought it was interesting that he says that he leads them beside still waters so that they can drink, that they're not anxious. And I thought, how interesting of a promise from the shepherd that he would give them rest. They wouldn't have to worry about food. They wouldn't have to worry about water or anything. I love what Rick was saying. He goes, everything that those sheep get comes from her. And I was like, wow, Rick, that was like a whole sermon, man. That was pretty profound. Because he had no idea what I was really at, the, at, the, like at that moment. I was like, that's it. That's, that's what the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. That's it. Knowing that your shepherd is sufficient to supply all of your needs. I think of Matthew eleven twenty eight. 28. Jesus tells them, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart. Think of the emotion there. And you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. That satisfaction of the sheep with their shepherd. I love what John Piper says about being satisfied. He goes, you know what sin is? Sin is simply what you do when you're not satisfied with God. Yeah, that hurt. What's sin? What Boil it down, man. I know we all fall short of the glory of God. I know Romans. Yeah, sure. You know what sin also is? That you're never satisfied. And you go seeking it. You go seeking where it can be found. Nope. So here's some handles on what I want to say. What you rest in, you give control to. What you rest in, you give control to. We're all resting in something. I wish I could say that we were super strong human beings and we never have to take a day off. But me and you both know you work overtime and you're like, I need a break. You can only go for so long. So what you rest in is what you give control to. I thought of three things that points out in this short three verses here of the Lord is my shepherd. The Lord, he is Yahweh. This means intimacy. So if you want to have a good relationship with Jesus, here you go. It's kind of a, a, a three-course meal. The first one, intimacy. Understanding that the Lord is Yahweh. He is a personal God willing to confront the personal you. Not who you're trying to be, the personal you. I thought to myself, you know, what's, what's, what's the opposite here? What's compare and contrast this thing? What's the opposite of intimacy? And what came to my mind was isolation. We isolate ourselves from God because we don't, we don't know it. We don't, we don't know him. We, we come to church and we sing songs, and guess what? Here's the wild part about all of this. You can do all of this. In Matthew 7, Jesus tells them, I did not know you. I know you did a bunch of stuff in my name, but depart, I never knew you. That should, that should be like, wait a minute. So I actually have to know Jesus? I can't just do Jesus' things? See, it's because a lot of times in our Christian walk, what we do whenever we start to doubt God is we simply isolate and we push him away. We push him away. And I know many of us in here, we're super holy. We've got this all Christian thing figured out, right? We need no guidance. It's a joke. Because many of us, we, we think that we've got it all figured out. And what's natural for most Christians, believe it or not, it's actually more true for believers than non-believers because of our knowledge of God is we know there's a God He's revealed himself to us, 
and we push them away. The second thing that I'll point out in this is the tenacity of the my. The Lord is my shepherd. I love what one scholar said. He goes, you know the craziest word in this whole first line? The word my. The fact that he would, David would say, the Lord is my shepherd. It's so personal that you can see David and all that he was knew that he needed a shepherd. He knew that he couldn't do it alone. He needed guidance. And I thought to myself, you know, what's one thing that I know that I've struggled with when it comes to the Lord as my shepherd? Well, I act like I don't have a shepherd, and I run away. It's called cowardice. I don't, I don't, I, in a moment like that where I, God is confronting who I am, we flee. No, 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 I didn't come today to church to hear that message. I'll come back next week. I, I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm, not, I'm running away from that. I don't like this. I don't like that. This is too personal for me. That's the best part about Christianity is it's not just that God, you know, we, ha- we have this illustration of what religion is, is us trying to get up the mountain. But true Christianity is that realizing that God made the mountain. He made it. There's no going up it. He made it. And if he made that, then we can understand that he even made us. The third one is this, sufficiency. The, the I shall not want. It's telling us, it's almost a confession if you look at it that way. It's a confession. There's one word that Christians hate hearing, and that's the word confession. Because again, it causes, causes us to get personal. But you know, if we say the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, that should remind you that he can fulfill everything you need. He's sufficient. Many of us, we don't believe this. I'm just going to be honest. I know you come here. I know like we sing songs, you raise your hands. I get it all. You don't think God's sufficient for your needs. You think, well, just one more Sunday and then I'll maybe get to that point. If they preach really good and they sing that song, my favorite song, then, then I'll know God is sovereign and that I can trust him with my whatever. This is, this is where many of us, we come to terms with who God is. And so the opposite of this lie, obviously, is he's insufficient. What's this mean? He's not enough. You look at the cross behind me, and you think of all the pain that you've went through and all the trauma. I think of when my dad died, and I was like, what, what do I do with these emotions? I, I wanted to have all those conversations, and now I can't. And I, I wanted to say this, and... But I never got to build that relationship and his grandson and all, all the emotions. God was willing to meet me in those moments and say, hey, I'm enough. I know you keep trying, but I need you to understand that I'm enough. And I'm going to give you what you need for right now. I'm going to be here with you. There's nothing better than a friend that's just willing to be there with you. Not just call you and text you and say, hey, let me know if you need anything. No, I'm just going to be here with you. We're going to stare at the Netflix screen, not pick a movie to stare at it, because we're going to have more conversation than actually watching. The, the, he is enough. Sometimes, sometimes I think we really do believe that we don't need Jesus in our lives. We, we need him on Sundays, and then we go to work on Mondays, and we act like we don't even know who he is. So my last point is Jesus is our shepherd. Jesus is our shepherd. He is our shepherd. As David claims that the Lord is my shepherd, today we approach Jesus and say, Jesus is our shepherd. 
Verse 3 says, he restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. I think that's one of those moments in scripture where we realize for his name's sake, God has a character to uphold, if you didn't know. He's gracious, slow to anger, overwhelming in mercy. That's our God. That's his character. And I, I thought this, it was interesting when I was reading up on this. You know, the shepherd's care says more about the shepherd than it does the sheep. So you may think, well, if I'm a good sheep, which that even itself is ridiculous if you know anything about sheep. If I'm a good sheep, then the shepherd will love me. It's the exact opposite. The shepherd will prepare a life for him, and it will be green pastures, still waters, and all wants will be fulfilled. That's the type of Jesus that we serve. I, th I think about 2 Corinthians, where he says, all of God's promises find their yes and amen in him. In Jesus, those promises that we see are still true today. The application question is this. When we start walking with Jesus, we don't look back. We don't look back. I'm going to invite the band up. But I, I, as I close, I just want you to give you a few more things here. There's some marks of sheep that I think are important. And it's that we would come to understand that we walk with Jesus. Walk with Jesus. Not just come in here and worship and do all that. Yes, that's part of it. But Micah 6.8 tells us three key things. Three key things about what God has told us. Listen to Micah 6.8. The prophet says, He has told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justice, to love kindness, and this last one, to walk humbly with your God. To do justice, love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. That's it. That's, that's the Christian life. And I thought to myself what A.B. Simpson says, there are two ways of living in God's love. One is constant trust, and the other is constant obedience. Trust and obey. I think of the old hymn, trust and obey. You know, in John 10, Jesus gives us a little bit of a, a rundown that he's our good shepherd. So I want to read you really quick, John chapter 10, just the first 11 verses, and this will complete the handout portion. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber, but he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him, the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his sheep by name and leads them. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him. For they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from. For they do not know the voice of strangers. And says that they were still having trouble with this. And so Jesus repeats himself in verse 7. So again, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are the thieves and robbers. But the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal, to kill, and destroy. But I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. And it ends in verse 11. I am the good shepherd, and the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep.
So there's six things that I think as Christ's sheep that we need to know by this verse. They know their shepherd. It's the first one. That God has made himself known to us today. Maybe you know someone that needs to, to know about the love and abundance of joy that God gives. And they just need to know this. That they know him. It's not that they can quote scripture and all this other. No, it's just that they simply know their shepherd's voice. Would you know God's voice if he spoke to you? Two, they know his voice. Three, they hear him calling them each by name. Think of the personal commitment that Jesus is giving in that scripture. And it's three things that really continues to show him is that they love him. They trust him. And they follow him. And, you know, I thought to myself as, as we close of, there was a story of, of a woman's son who had cancer. And the woman told her son, you know, hey, I want to teach you Psalm 23 because you're going to have some dark moments in your life. And so she said, son, pull out your hand and I want you to say this, the Lord is my shepherd. And so as whenever he would need, need a kind of a refresher, the little boy would say, the Lord is my shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. And the story goes on to say is when he passed away, his mom said that he was holding his ring finger because that meant my. And what the mom said, the mom said that I know my son died in the shepherd's arms. The little boy knew that if he would hold his middle finger or his ring finger, that he was my shepherd and that he can trust him with his life. That's today. That's what, that's what I pray for us to know and grab our ring finger and say, the Lord is my shepherd. Would you pray with me? Lord, we are thankful. Thankful that we have a good shepherd to call on that knows what we need. We don't lack in your presence. We don't, we don't need any more than just you. As the psalm said earlier, nothing else. Jesus, nothing else. You've done it all. Yes, there's heartbreak. Yes, there's pain. But you're not afraid of it. Even in the death that we see in the world around us, Lord, we know that there's life. We know that death does not get the last word. We know that the one who went before us, the good shepherd, gave us life. He lived a perfect life, a sinless life. He lived, he died, and he rose into eternity. And Lord, today I just proclaim in this place that we would be a people with eternity in mind, not in problems, not in the issues that we have, Lord, that you are the great promise and you've been given to us. Lord, today I pray that you would call some sheep back to the fold today. That they would know that you're personal, that you know what we're going through, that you know exactly the emotions that they faced when they woke up today or middle of the night last night. Lord, you know us. 
So Lord, let us be a people that draw near to you in times of need. Lord, I pray today that we come to you open-handed. You've given us everything we've got. Let it be enough. Let your word speak life into us. Let your word speak hope into broken relationships, into broken people. Lord, do what only you can do in this place. Holy Spirit, please, we plead with you to speak to us. That we would know our shepherd's voice and to know that we do not lack in your sight. Lord, do what only you can do in this place. It's in the mighty and powerful name of the shepherd we pray.